Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. My guest today is Jonathan Cheng of the Wall Street Journal. In March of 2019, John was named China Bureau Chief based in Beijing. Supported by a team of more than two dozen correspondents and researchers, most located in Beijing and Shanghai, although many now based outside of China, we'll get to that. John oversees the journal's coverage of the world's second largest economy across a range of areas, including politics, economics, business, tech, and society. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So John, it's got to feel like a small lifetime ago, but you were named to head up the journal in China just a short 18 months ago. Since then, it seems to me you've had a front row seat to really one of the most remarkable periods in China's recent history. John, I want to start by asking, what expectations did you have when you first stepped into that role? Well, um, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I think it was obviously a very daunting position to take on. Um, it's, a, it's a large job. Um, I was in Korea for the previous six years before I took the job, and Korea um, is a much smaller place than China, population-wise, and in terms of the economy and in terms of the overall story. Um, but obviously, it's, uh, it's an honor and it's a big privilege to come to a country like China and write about it for the Wall Street Journal. Um, but obviously, the time that I was asked to come, which is this time, the last two years, has really been a time when we've seen the relationship deteriorate quite quickly between the US and China. And so I can't say I was surprised by the way things were going. Um, I was named in March 2019, but um, you know, not long before that, as I was considering the job, um, we had the detention of two Canadian citizens um, by Chinese authorities that are still detained now, nearly two years later, and I'm a Canadian citizen. So that was obviously something that uh, was weighing heavily on my mind as I was thinking through all of this. Um, and of course, um, you know, we had a pretty clear trajectory from uh, the way things were going between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, um, the Chinese leader, and you could sort of see that things were heading in a pretty bad direction. And, um, you know, for me, that was obviously consideration. But uh, when you're a journalist, you sometimes embrace some of those um, challenges, because you know, it's going to mean sure. that there's a lot of news to write about. I can well imagine that uh, not only as you've described it, there, you know, were some personal considerations that had to go into taking the job, but, but also a very reasonable expectation that uh, you were going to be primarily focused on the geopolitical issues, particularly, as you mentioned, the relationship between um, the U.S. and China. So, you know, obviously things took a turn in a way that you could not have anticipated, where very early on, uh, my understanding is it was a December, really, of last year that the Wall Street Journal was one of the f first news outlets 
to pick up that uh, you know something unusual was going on in Wuhan. There was a mysterious new illness that seemed to be cropping up. John, talk to us about those very early days before anyone had heard the word coronavirus. They never thought about something called COVID. And, and indeed, I suppose you and your um, colleagues really didn't know what was going on. How did you approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I was um, just digging through some of my old emails and just going through some of the traffic um, just to relive it a little bit. Um, and I recall that um, there was a big outbreak of swine fever last year, and it's still ongoing. We reported on a case of pneumonic plague that broke out in Inner Mongolia in November. So we were already sort of attuned to some of this going on. Obviously, we had no idea what was really coming. There was the first email on December the 31st from one of my colleagues saying that there was a case of SARS in Wuhan. SARS, of course, being um, the respiratory disease that's pretty closely related to COVID um, that broke out in China in 2002, 2003. So, John, and, were your first instincts to think, okay, so yeah, this is another health story, but it fits in a broader narrative of various flus that have been occurring in China, you know, nothing to get terribly alarmed about? Yeah, I think that's a really fair way to put it. Um, we obviously didn't have a sense of how big it would get, um, but we did send two reporters down to Wuhan on January the 7th, which is pretty early, all things considered. Um, but when they got there, actually, they didn't find a whole lot. Nobody in Wuhan seemed to be, be very concerned at all. They went to the wet markets um, where, you know, it's suspected that the cases were first, you know, first emerged from there, but the market was shut down. Nobody seemed terribly concerned. Um, and they came back after one day and we sort of, we almost didn't write a story. We weren't sure really what was going on. So, John, walk us through then, as best you can recall, those those ensuing weeks in January. And as you all, I'm sure, dug further into the story, talk, started to talk to more people, at what point did a light bulb go on and you thought to yourself, oh, my gosh, this could be something really big and important? Well, I mean, it's um, it, it, casting my mind back nine, ten months now, but um but I do remember I edited the, the first story where we used that word coronavirus. And I remember it was one of our reporters in Hong Kong, Natasha Khan. She is pretty plugged into the health community. And she had got a tip from some of her sources that um, experts believed that this thing was something called the coronavirus. And I remember asking her and thinking to myself, what's a coronavirus? I had to look it up. Um, but we put out that story. It was perhaps the first, I think, in the English language mainstream media to sort of name a coronavirus. And um, I believe the WHO confirmed it shortly thereafter. And and I recall, you know, just this idea that it was related to SARS, I think, in the U.S. that may not mean so much. But, um, you know, I was in Hong Kong shortly after SARS swept through, and um, you could really see the 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 effects of it. I mean, people were still very much thinking about it. And I think many of my colleagues out here had lived through SARS. And so um, pretty quickly, we um, got our global health reporter on the line. Uh, she had gone to Africa to write about Ebola. Um, people were pretty scared early on. And so we did a big conference call with her. And we just sort of said, like, first of all, are we at any risk? Should we not be going anywhere near Wuhan? What can you tell us? And she basically said, we don't know anything about this, but I do think this could be a big story. Um, and then, of course, um, by the time they shut down Wuhan on January the 23rd, this was um, a big turning point, I mean, I, not just for us, but for the whole country. And I think at that point, 
it became abundantly clear that this was a really big deal. And by that point, we had sent another two reporters back into the city, and they were actually in Wuhan when they declared the the lockdown. So, you know, one of them flew out the night before, and one of them had to get on one of the last trains out of Wuhan because we were concerned that she may not be able to get out for months. And indeed, if she hadn't been on that train, she would have been there for several months. Even then, how quickly did you and your colleagues start to imagine that this could be a story that would be bigger than China? I mean, I'm sure your initial instincts were to think about Wuhan or possibly to think about spread to other provinces in China. When did it occur to you that this could go global? I think it took a little while. Um, I mentioned that SARS was sort of our frame of reference um, for a lot of us. And SARS did spread globally too, but it spread mostly through the vectors of the Chinese community. So actually where I'm from in Toronto, there were a bunch of cases there um, and in Canada um, and there were other pockets all around the world, but obviously nothing like COVID. Um, so I don't know that we were thinking that it would go global in quite that way. Um, but we did, you know, we had a lot of people away because it was the Lunar New Year at the end of January when they shut down Wuhan. And we had a lot of reporters who were all around the world. Some of them were going back to their families and spending time with them because it's a whole week off. Um, and so, you know, as we were communicating with our colleagues, by we, I mean, me and my deputies, we were really just sorting, sort of saying to them that we think that this could be something that lasts for several weeks or, you know, maybe a month or two. That's, that's sort of what we were telling our reporters to brace ourselves and prepare ourselves for, that this was going to be a bit of a marathon. But by marathon, we thought maybe one month or two months. We never thought, you know, <laughs> quite get to this proportion. Right. More like some sort of a, a global super marathon, as it, as it turned out. China seems to have handled the crisis remarkably well, reporting less than 100,000 confirmed cases and fewer than 5,000 deaths, which is amazing, especially when considering that China's population is about four and a half times that of the U.S., in other words, if the per capita death rate in the U.S. were the same as that of China, we would have about 1,000 COVID-related deaths in total, rather than that many each day. So, John, what I want to know is, in your opinion, why has the outcome in China, at least so far, been so different than the U.S.? For example, one of my students, Lucy, sent in a question asking if the explanation might be cultural referring to China's collectivism versus American individualism. How do you see it? Sure. Um, I definitely do think that Lucy has a point. Um, I think uh, on many levels she's correct. I don't know if you want to call it cultural per se or governmental at some level, but um, it is true that in the U.S. Um, you hear a lot of talk of the word freedom and people want to insist on their freedom. You don't hear that so often here in China. Um, and in China, you'll hear them talking more about effective governance and um, obviously, people in Beijing, the leadership here is not afraid to use some pretty blunt tactics that um, just wouldn't fly in the U.S. Um, so, look, I, I, I don't want to give China a free pass. Um, first of all, you, you refer to official numbers, and we could go into a whole side tangent that I don't think we want to get into here about whether the official numbers reflect reality or not. Suffice it to say that I don't think that um, if there's undercounting, that the undercounting is on the magnitude of 10 times or 20 times or, or more. I mean, it's just, if they could have hit it, they would have hit it from the very beginning. Um, if they, if you could hide it easily, every government in the world, to some extent, would have done it. The fact is, you, you can't hide this. Um, 
And so if we take that as a starting point, um, keep in mind that you take it back to January again. There was a, this period from January 5th to January the 17th where China reported no new cases at all for 12 days. These 12 days happen to be very politically important days for China and for Wuhan in particular. So the fact that no cases were reported, it doesn't look good in hindsight. We've raised a lot of questions and we've done several page one stories that delve pretty deeply into this. Um, but setting that aside, I think once the leadership in Beijing realized that this was going to be a big deal and that half measures weren't going to work, you know, you have this debate between if you shut down the economy um, and try to kill the virus, you're going to you're going to hurt people's livelihoods. On the other hand, um, you know, if you it, it, it's a tough debate, I'm not I'm not saying it's an easy decision for policymakers to make, but I think what it came down to for Beijing was they recognized, I think, I mean, I, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think they recognized that you really have to go all in on trying to smother the virus, kill the virus. I don't know if it's killable, but you need to kill it as much as you can. And only then can you hope to have a real economic recovery. You can't do both at the same time. Only if you suppress the virus, can you have consumer confidence really come back in a meaningful way. So John, you talk about, you know, being all in and sort of heavy handed tactics by which I presume you're referring to things such as um, really intensively enforced quarantines, very, very widespread neighborhood testings when there's any semblance of an outbreak, things like that. Help us understand the degree to which that is what I would call top down. In other words, it's the actions of a, of a strong government or is it also in some sense bottom up? That is to say that the people are okay with that, that the people perhaps are willing to trade some of their sense of individual liberty for the greater good of, as you say, killing the virus. I think it's a combination of the two. Um, I would definitely say that there's a stronger element of the top down in the Chinese response versus the US certainly, and probably versus many other countries in the world. Um, that's not to say that people don't chafe at these restrictions. It's not to say that people don't, you know, it's not that people like it. Um, and I think that some of the psychological scars that people um, are going to carry from this, um, I don't know that we know the extent of it. I don't know that we ever will know the extent of it, um, particularly for Wuhan, because that city was shut down, like really shut down for two months. And so... Um, there was definitely a human cost, and it's not quantifiable. Um, but I wonder whether some of those people would say that in the long run it was worth it. And as a reporter, you can go and ask them that, but you don't know if you're getting an honest answer, not necessarily because they're lying to you or they're worried about the government, but they themselves are probably pretty conflicted themselves. And like all things in life, there's there's some plus, there's some minus, and we don't know what the alternative would have been if if they they may say, sure, I would have loved more freedom, but if that had meant that we'd still have the virus raging through China, then maybe not. So I, I think it's a tough question to answer, but I do think that people on the whole, I would say, are pretty happy with the way China dealt with it because um, life right now in September 2020 feels pretty close to normal. And I don't know, I don't know how it feels in Virginia. I don't know how it feels in the U.S., but, um, but, but you know, it, it, it's sort of like ripping the Band-Aid off. It wasn't pleasant, but you got it all over with in one go. 
Well, and uh, you know, as the United States approaches two hundred thousand deaths, that that perspective is is more than well worth considering, um, at least in my view. Um, just one other thing I wanted to ask you about the uh, the the virus and the whole situation before we move on. Early on, John, there was a lot of talk about the use of tracking technology, um, actually not only in China, but in Singapore, in India, and other places where um, apparently there were technologies developed that would help users identify if they had been around other people or indeed that the government could perhaps um, somehow keep track of that. I remember stories of you know QR codes turning red on phones and things of that nature. How important did that end up being, in your view, in um, China's efforts to um, to get a control over the situation? It's a good question. Um, certainly, it's become a part of everyone's life here um, to have these QR codes and to have a green code, which is the, the flip side of the red code, of course. Um, I've never had anything but green. Um, and for that reason, um, Life hasn't been too inconvenient. Um, I haven't had too much disruption in that way. I've traveled around China uh, at least twice now, uh, getting on planes, getting on trains, going, you know, basically the equivalent of New York to Chicago, going those sorts of distances without any trouble. So, um, you know, it, it definitely played a role um, in, in, in giving people confidence as well. Um, now, as for the technology underneath it and whether or not um, it allowed us to be tracked any more than the Chinese government presumably could track us anyways. I'm not, I'm not convinced that it added too much to their, to their ability. I mean, presumably they can track every phone in the country um, and where it's going. Um, with this app, um, we did some stories. We um, wrote about how um, you could, in some cities, uh, watch people who apparently had the, 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 the virus move from place to place across the city so you could avoid that person or something like that. But those are pretty localized examples. And I know from traveling around the country that every province, every city even sometimes has a different app of their own. And I don't know how interoperable these apps are, but given how quickly they had to be sort of developed right. and thrown out there, my guess is not too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, and also, John, you know, much more low tech was simply the rapid adoption of masks. Um, and as I'm sure you know, that has remained a subject of great controversy, uh, particularly here in the United States and, and has become politicized. What about in China? Do, did everyone just immediately adopt wearing masks or were there also issues surrounding that? I can't say that everyone loved it, um, but I don't think that there was any major resistance. Um, you know, I understand the the reason why people in the U.S. Um, don't, they may chafe at it, but I think many people in China probably looked at those headlines and they were certainly circulating here in China and probably wondered, what are they thinking over there? Um, and, you know, Again, there was the SARS example, and I think people had already become conditioned in many ways. If you have a cough, if you're not feeling 100%, um, a lot of people will just wear a mask. It's not a big deal. Um, it's just what you do. And so it never took on the same sort of symbolic freight that it took on in the U.S., and I think that that probably helped. And, you know, I'm not a scientific expert, but I do think that that probably helped in some way. I mean, that's, that's my understanding of the literature out there. So earlier, you you know you tied the whole story of China's successful efforts to get a control over the virus 
to an economic rebound. And um, indeed, I noticed that you recently published a big story on how China's economy is in fact now beginning to rebound. And there's lots of data coming out to support that. Several economists are now forecasting that 2020 will be a year of um, actual positive economic growth um, in China, which will put it in sharp distinction from most, much of the rest of the world. Help us understand that on a more personal level, though. As, as China starts to return to some degree of normalcy, talk to us a little bit about your life. What does that feel like on the ground when you walk uh, outside, you commute, I presume, to and from work? You know, What does that actually feel like? What, what can you do? What can you still not do in your daily routine? Sure. Happy to answer that one. Um, I, I think if you tagged along with me for a day, you would probably find that it's not all that different from what my life was like beforehand. Um, you'll see a lot more people on the streets wearing face masks, of course, than last year. Um, and when you walk into the supermarket, there'll probably be a guy there doing a pretty perfunctory temperature risk, risk check on you. Um, and occasionally you'll be asked to show a health code, but, but that's about it, at least in Beijing. Um, you know, the traffic is back, um, get stuck in traffic jams again. I can't get a cab anymore. Um, some of the restaurants that I used to go to are impossible at lunchtime. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's in many ways kind of back where we were last year. Um, the main thing is that of course I can't fly out of China too easily. I mean, you, you can fly, but it's going to be you know, a big headache because you're flying into another country, you're probably in quarantine and all the rest of it. But other than that, um, you know, I mentioned flying to other parts of China and I remember flying back into Beijing. It was a few weeks ago and I expected that they would probably um, take my temperature or look at my health code or do all this and that, but there wasn't anything at all. And it was almost unnervingly back to normal quickly. Um, so are so, you saying that most uh, most workers in the business community and in government and so forth, office workers, um, are generally now back at work and commuting to their uh, place of work every day? I would think that that's generally true. Um, you know, in the office building that we're in, the elevators are packed. Um, people appear to be going back to the office. Uh, we may be the exception simply because we're an American company. And so we're, we sort of have a global protocol here. And our protocol is such that we're not going into the office every day, but I'm going in, you know, several days a week. And so are some of my colleagues. And we have a mix of work from home and, 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 and work in the office, just whatever suits people. So, you know, talking about going into the office, I guess we should say that you you are going into the office with a perhaps a few less colleagues than you, you used to. Um, obviously, over the last several months, there has been an escalation of tension in the journalistic world to include the expulsion of several journalists from China to include, as I understand it, reporters for your newspaper. Help us understand, how do you deal with that? I mean, you're not that big of an organization to begin with in China. I suppose being down by several reporters hampers your ability to fully cover the breadth of stories that you want to cover. Is that right? Yeah. So in the midst of the pandemic, um, take it back to February, we um, became part of this U.S.-China tussle here. And so we know that the pandemic actually served, unfortunately, to, to I think, worsen ties between the two sides rather than bring them together per se. But uh, we had an opinion uh, column that basically displeased China. And when that happened, um, we had three of our reporters expelled from the country. 
uh, given just a few days to leave and pack their things. Um, and, you know, the question was whether or not it was really the Wall Street Journal that they were targeting. Um, but I think we got our answer in part a few weeks later because um, the U.S. then responded to that by limiting um, the number of Chinese journalists that could be in the U.S. And Beijing responded then by kicking out all of the U.S. citizens working as reporters for not only the Wall Street Journal, but also the New York Times and the Washington Post. And so that was um, a pretty big blow, I think, to uh, American journalism in China generally. Um, and, and of course, I'm still here because I'm Canadian, but, um, but we're down to just a handful of people from uh, more than two dozen at the beginning of the year. So um, obviously, that's an additional challenge that we have on top of um, dealing with everything else COVID-related. Despite the challenges of a reduced reporting staff, there's certainly been no shortage of other important China-related stories for you to cover this year. Perhaps most important is in the geopolitical sphere, where the relationship between the U.S. and China is showing increasing signs of strain. Some have even started to describe this as a new Cold War. What do you see as driving this dynamic? That's a great question, and um, I don't know that there's a a definitive answer, but obviously it's election. It's an election season this year, and uh, and obviously that's going to um, highlight a lot of the differences because you have Donald Trump coming out there and saying, "I'm going to be tougher on China," and Joe Biden saying, "You know, I'm I'm the better guy to deal with China," um, and so you sort of have that race going on domestically in the U.S. Um, but you know, I think as to the question of who's driving this, I mean, if you take for a moment, the Trump administration's rhetoric at face value. Um, they say that things have been actually going in the wrong direction for a long time, not just during the Trump administration, but going back through Obama and Bush and even Clinton, um, and that they're simply the first to call out China on this. Um, and, you know, I think that's true and it's not true in, in, in some ways. I mean, it's true in that it, you know, I think if privately you go to people in the Obama administration or the Bush administration, I think probably they would privately tell you that, yes, actually, there, there's some truth to that. In hindsight, maybe we ought to have um, gotten tougher on them sooner. Maybe that's what they would say. I, that's my that's my suspicion. Um, but also, but John, if mind, I can yeah, inter go ahead. interject there and ask, you know, from the from the Chinese side, um, and I, I take what you've said, and I think there's a lot of uh, lot of wisdom in those comments. From from the Chinese side, though, there's been a um, fair degree of activity uh, geopolitically as well, be it on the border with India, uh, continued escalation of activities in the South China Sea, the recent national security law in Hong Kong. What is, what's motivating these actions from the Chinese side? I think those of us in the West, we have a hard time understanding politics in the in China because after all it's a single party state are there political motivations that are pushing these um, actions that are perceived as hostile actions in the West you know um, that's that's basically what we're trying to figure out every single day um, China doesn't have the most transparent government that's an understatement um, and so everything is going to be conjecture at some level. Um, but obviously, I think it's worth pointing out that um, the backdrop here is you do have an economy that is slowing 
um, pretty dramatically in China, uh, even before COVID. That's not unexpected. I mean, it would have been unexpected if China had kept double-digit percentage growth um, in GDP going forever. I mean, that would be the true miracle. Um, so it was bound to come down at some point. But um, I think part of the concern is that it's coming down before China has gotten wealthy. Um, you know, per capita GDP is not at, um, you know, the level of, say, a South Korea or a Japan, uh, certainly not the U.S. Um, so you have that in the background. Um, and you've had 20-some um, years where um, you've really had China open itself and its citizens up to the world, where you have uh, Chinese tourists increasingly going abroad, obviously a lot of Chinese students in the U.S. and in Australia and in Canada, and you had a lot of people immigrating uh, abroad. And so I think that there was a recognition, perhaps on China's side, that this combination was probably not a good combination to have the economy slowing. Um, every government in the world, to some extent, has their legitimacy and their support based on economic uh, growth and economic strength. Um, you could argue that it's to a greater degree in China or to, a, you know, to, to some degree anyways. And to, to watch that slow, I think, was a concern at, at a time when people were um, more exposed to all sorts of different ideas around the world. And so I do think that there was an attempt here to maybe narrow things and tighten things up a little bit. A lot of people would lay that at the feet of Xi Jinping, of course, who, who took power in 2012, 2013. Um, but, you know, I've also seen the argument that it predates him as well. And that that's something I think historians will probably debate for, for, for years to come. Well, so let's dig in a little bit further to that economic growth. And I'd like to ask you about it from the perspective of the tech sector. So um, obviously, there are Chinese companies that are now pursuing strategies of globalization and global expansion. Names like Huawei and TikTok, of course, come immediately to mind. And that's been met in the West with phrases like digital divide and decoupling. What's going on there in, in the tech world? And how concerned are you about you know, what I would call sort of a wedge in global tech that seems to be emerging? Well, I think it's it, it's been a reality of China. You know, you could go back to um, the year that China decided basically to shut out Google, which was a decade ago now. So, I mean, um, certainly it's becoming more pronounced in the Trump and Xi age, but it predates both of them by, by quite a bit. And, you know, I think it really goes back to that U.S.-China rivalry, which is developing in every sphere. It's spilled over to journalism and into diplomacy, as I've discussed. But I think both sides rightly recognize that technology is going to be um, perhaps the most important part of it, because technology, as we all know, has seeped into every aspect of life um, from our daily lives um, to the military and to um, economics and to everything else. I mean, you can't be I mean, think about how much wealth has been created in Silicon Valley over the last generation. And, um, and China understandably wants a piece of that. Um, you want a piece of that because it's going to lift um, the standard of living across China, but also because it's going to strengthen China's military and also because it's just it's it, it's going to improve people's lives. And so I think both sides see the advantage of the advantage that the U.S. has had in setting standards in having all of the big global names in tech all be effectively Silicon Valley names. I mean, how many are outside of California and 
guess Washington State if you include you know Amazon and Microsoft. So I mean, if you look at the the biggest names, um, you can see why the U.S. right now, you know, is 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 concerned because TikTok really was the first social media company. It just sort of almost came out of nowhere. I mean, it came out of nowhere as a little glib, but it it, it has stormed the social media world. Huawei similarly. Um, Again, it didn't come out of nowhere, but but it's gained market share really quickly. So I think they yeah. recognize that there are going to be dozens of these big Chinese names if the U.S. doesn't try to do something quickly about it. I have to tell you, though, in talking about this interview with my students, you know, a number of them expressed concern about whether this um, growing um, hostility, I don't know if you want to call it a cold war between the two superpowers is going to, um, you know, really cause problems down the line. One, one of my students, Adam, actually tied it to global climate change and, and kind of asked, how, how do we possibly address climate change in a world where two superpowers perceive themselves as um, somewhat hostile rivals? You know, another student, Jocelyn, called the whole situation a complete bifurcation how, I'm curious to know, John, how how far down that line do you go? How, how worried are you? How concerned are you? How To what extent is this going to shape, perhaps in a negative way, the world that my young students are about to enter as young professionals? That's a tough question. Um, and I, I don't know that I have a very cheery answer for you, but um, it is true that, that climate change comes up all the time when you talk about areas where the U.S. and China can still cooperate, although um, the U.S., of course, is no longer in the Paris Agreement. So um, you sort of have that dynamic going on. And on the Chinese side, you have them turning back to coal again as the economy slows and they want to get things going again. So that's on the environment in particular. But but more broadly, um, I think the concern here is um, you've seen this rhetoric come up in Chinese state media a lot in recent days. But um, China's been, been been saying pretty clearly that we can't be changed. The U.S. is not going to change us. Um, what they're saying is that they've said, look, when the U.S., meaning when Richard Nixon started the path to normalization back in the 1970s, China was under the rule of the Communist Party back then. And guess what? They're, they're still in charge, you know? And so they're saying, don't expect us to change. You came to us and we, we agreed that this was going to be our relationship. Um, and we are who we are. And so if you're looking to change our value system, it's not going to happen. So then the question sort of gets kicked back into the U.S. side of things. And the question is, well, does the U.S. want to accept China with this value system that it has? And that's that's a tough question to answer. But I suspect a lot of people in the U.S. are probably going to say, no, we don't share those values. And if you're not going to budge, then I don't know how much we have in common. So that's sort of what I'm worried about right now, because it really is, it gets right down to the basic values. Wow. That's really interesting to, to kind of key into that just fundamental difference between, you know, what we might call Western values and, and Chinese values. John, I'd like to sort of close by asking you, you know, China remains for many of us a, a bit of an enigma. Uh, hard often to understand. Um, you're there on the ground. You you live it every day. You you and your colleagues do your best to um, report on what's actually going on there. What do you could you tell us something that you know you find is perhaps sort of commonly misunderstood in the West and just isn't really 
true to your understanding? Uh, what can you tell us that will help us better understand China? Um, well, I mean, you say it's an, an enigma to a lot of people in the U.S., but I have to say it's a bit of a, an enigma to me here, too, as well. And um, I mean, I think the most difficult thing, of course, is to try to make any generalizations about a country of 1.4 billion people. Um, China frequently says that 1.4 billion people feel this or 1.4 billion people feel that. Um, I'm obviously necessarily very skeptical of such claims. I talked about earlier about how much interaction and exchange there had been um, over the past generation between China and the rest of the world. And we're seeing that sort of tighten up a little bit. But I do think that one thing, you know, maybe I'll frame it a bit more personally, but I mean, one thing that I think I underestimated when I got here, and keep in mind, I've only been here for a year. Um, and a lot of the year I was, I was, I was basically locked indoors with COVID. Um, but, you know, one thing is that um, I think there is actually quite a deep reservoir of goodwill, I think, towards America um, among people here. Um, and I say that even though I came at arguably the worst time um, in memory, living memory uh, between China and the U.S., um, and we were the target of that for a little while, um, you know, people were upset at the Wall Street Journal in particular and saw us as representatives of the U.S. government, which, of course, we aren't. Um, but I do think that whether it's the NBA or Hollywood or whatever or values and, and even though many people here may not like Trump and may think he's, um, you know, from the Chinese point of view, I think to many people, he represents the worst of what America re represents and all the rest. But I think that in spite of that, I think that sort of highlights that, that in spite of that, you, in conversations that we have uh, in terms of the interviews and, and, and when we reach out to people and we identify ourselves as from the Wall Street Journal, you actually still find that in spite of it all, that there is this, this reservoir, as I said, um, of, of, Maybe admiration is too strong a word, um, but but there is some goodwill there, and um, I, I do think that that's being chipped away at through what we've seen over the past year. But um, but but I'm sort of talking about where I think the starting point was. But as I said, yeah, I'm still trying to understand this country, and if you ask me again in six months, I may say my misunderstanding was what I just said that 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 there is this feeling towards the U.S. because maybe I'm totally wrong. Well, but I appreciate you uh, you focusing on that and and help reminding us that China is not simply a um, you know an impersonal country, but it's a it's a collection of human beings who all have their own individual thoughts and ideas and and indeed emotions and sentiments toward other countries in the world. And I have to tell you, you know, I have the incredible privilege of teaching students at the University of Virginia, many of them Chinese nationals. And I'm, I'm reminded every day of uh, that same feeling of admiration and goodwill that, that those students to a person um, express to the United States. And that, I must say, gives me some hope about the uh, relationship for, for the future. Um, John, I just in closing want to thank you for a really great conversation today. You've, you've given our listeners a, a rare glimpse into China's response to the coronavirus and the other issues we've been talking about. And especially during this somewhat tense period, we're really fortunate to have reporters like yourself there on the ground that can help us understand the situation. So um, really appreciate you joining us today, particularly late in your evening in Beijing. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew, with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and host, and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!